0: that God makes God's self weak in order to identify with the weak and oppressed is this beautiful image, whether one believes it or not. it's That's the call of humanness, is to be in solidarity with our neighbors because we all suffer. We're all born, we all die, and we suffer in between and there's joy in between, but we're united in our fragility.
1: Hello, damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where we chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. We hope that you will listen, learn, and begin giving a damn in your world today, wherever you may be. We have a fantastic conversation for you today. Last week, I recorded a chat with Larisha Hawkins. She is currently a professor at University of Virginia, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about that. We spend most of our time chatting about the highly charged and very controversial things she did in 2015. Spoiler alert, it shouldn't have been highly charged or very controversial, but here we are. In 2015, while she was a tenured professor at Wheaton College just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Recently, a documentary came out about what happened then and what has happened since then called Same God. And side note, through July 1st, you can rent it for 99 cents. I think it's Amazon Prime. Go check it out. Go Google it. You know how to use the Googles. So you should probably make that happen, friends. It is a fantastic documentary, and this is a great conversation. I truly, from the bottom of my heart, enjoyed it. Larisha has so much to teach us. Before we jump into our conversation today, I want to give a huge shout out to this week's sponsor. Y'all know that I'm very picky about who sponsors this show. They have to align very closely with my values in life and with the values of Let's Give a Damn. And this episode is brought to you by Redcap, a fantastic company that makes workwear and uniforms. Not only is Redcap a Nashville-based company, which I, of course, love because I live here right now, but they champion the men and women who are out there committed to making our communities thrive. Everything they make, From work shirts to coveralls, it's crafted with purpose and on purpose. They are a no BS company. What you see is what you get. And what you're getting is a group of people who genuinely give a damn about work and about life and about those two things being done right. From July 1 through July 31, you can get 20% off your first purchase at redcap.com using the promo code GIVEADAM. That's 20% off. Your first purchase at RedCap.com with the promo code Give a Damn through July 31st. Side note: I also worked with them last month to interview amazing damn givers that are contributing beautifully to their communities during this global pandemic. You can see more about that those conversations in that series called The Frontlines. You can see more of that at RedCap.com/community. That's RedCap.com/community community red Cap, thank you so much for believing in our show and thank you so much for all the amazing things you do in this world and you if you want to help us continue to do what we do go buy something from them they're amazing products many of you probably work in different fields and industries where you could use these amazing clothes okay let's get started shall we here's my conversation with the incredible larisha hawkins let's go Larisha Hawkins, thank you so much for joining me on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Fantastic. We have so much to dive into. Let's start with this. It is Juneteenth, um, a what should be national holiday that most Americans, uh, or I should say most white Americans don't know about. They weren't taught it in school because most schools teach a very sanitized version of history, especially uh, those of us that had a... A kind of right-wing fundamentalist Christian education. Juneteenth was definitely never mentioned in there, uh, because in there they heralded people like uh Christopher Columbus as great uh discoverers. And so we definitely weren't gonna hear about Juneteenth. So I'm I'm very pleased to be recording this with you on Juneteenth. And um, what do you feel about? Juneteenth. Do you feel supported as as a black woman in America? Do you feel supported by this day? I know that kind of one of my one of my beefs, I guess, with this day is that a it's not a, a national holiday already, and b you know, 1862 slavery was abolished, 1865 was really abolished when the last slaves got word of it in Texas, but we're really still experiencing slavery uh, because of the 13th Amendment. Like it never went away; it just changed forms as we're kind of you know framing it these days. So, how do you feel about this day?
0: Right, it's it's a that's a complicated question to answer because I mean the first thing that came to mind when you asked is how do I feel about Martin Luther King Jr. Day? Um, I should say doc, Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. Because without the Reverend and the Doctor, we forget the totality of who he was and and is. Right. Mm. Um, and while I'm kind of too young to remember all of the fighting within state and national legislatures, um, from like actually paying attention in the paper, I remember when it became a holiday. So let's be clear about that. I just wasn't um, privy to all of the back and forth. I sensed that there was some racist reason that people didn't want to make it a holiday and I grew up hearing these arguments about well he had an affair you know um anyway that's how i feel like mm. it's american tokenism this is something that is for us and by us that we have known about but that this kind of white epiphany like oh my gosh like let's celebrate this well i have um colleagues at universities that declared this a holiday and said oh yeah Friday you have off now but by the way there's graduation and so the black and brown folks who are working to make sure graduation goes off without a hitch the black professors who want to be there for their students have a decision are they there for their students or are they absent and that's, that's, that's how the U S works. Yes. Right. Um, these kind of token acknowledgements of, um, American and I say American in quotes, because obviously that's, that too, um, is a misnomer, um, sins. Uh, and again, I, and, and, and I should say not sins, but that's, that's the nomenclature. That's not, it's not my accounting of it. Um, right. because I think, we make it too easy for people when we just chalk slavery up to the American, America's original sin. Well, by the way, the genocide of the native peoples is the original one. So, um, anyway.
1: So like all things, all things, it is very complicated how to feel, you know, mm-hmm. about it. I mean, I, I feel as a, you know, I am, I'm a Latino, but so so i'm not white but i do but so i do you know every time black history month comes around that that feels to me like another way to kind of pat black people on the head and say see we're acknowledging all the shit we did sort of kinda mm-hmm. because we have excuses for why things happened um, and, and, in so many slave owners like treated their slaves so well. And, you know, we, we rationalize our way through it, but here we'll give you a full month. So like, stop whining, look, <laughs> look what we're doing for you. Right. And so it goes back yeah. to that token, that token yeah. nature of, you know, these, these, these holidays, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Day, if Juneteenth becomes a national holiday, Black History Month. Um, and yet... And yet you would think that if year after year, having these special days to remember these special people and moments in time or horrible moments in time, rather, you would think that we would get better. You would think (laughs) that we would make the changes necessary. And yet we're not, we're still dealing with, you know, and we'll talk about so many things in this conversation. We're still dealing with them. That to me is mind boggling that we say we're for not just equality, but equity. And we're for, you know, um, you know, recognizing the amazing things that black people have done and all that they've come through and this and that and the other. And yet we're still dealing with systemic racism. We're still dealing with the preschool, to prison pipeline. We're still dealing with, you know, I've had so many white men. It's all been white men the past three weeks, you know, say like, well, redlining isn't a problem anymore. It's so far in the past. And it's like, just because Uh you abolish something, just because you say this isn't legal anymore, doesn't mean that it stops happening I've
0: got a recent study from the city of Chicago that proves otherwise. Yeah, right.
1: Right. It's still very; those lines are still very much drawn. And so, yes. So, you know, to kind of sum up what I think your answer was, like it's complicated. Like,
0: well, it's complicated, and it's it's complicated, and and I also want to say it's uh it's a damn slap in the face. So let's give a damn, right? Um, it's a slap in the face. It feels like. Um, not just a token acknowledgement. It feels like a crumb off of the white table. That's what it mm. feels like. Like, a, we'll drop you a crumb so that you won't riot anymore. Look, we gave you a holiday. Can you please stop spilling into the streets? Um, and and it's overshadowed by the fact that the president of the United States was going to give a speech in Tulsa, Oklahoma yep. in the month of a massacre of Black people, the first Black Wall Street, a thriving Black community that remains decimated. And of course, people are, humans are thriving, um, but economically devastated to this day. Um, Communities and families don't recover from that in a generation or two or three. And um, so the 99th the month of the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. It was not a riot. It was white people with baseball bats and ropes. Um, It was racial terror. And so for the president to do that and then like, oh, I'll just do it on the next day instead. um, No, that's, that also in that context, and it makes it makes me angry. In fact, it's not just complicated, it's complicated. Um, it's part of the the history of, of racial injustice that people don't want to deal with in this country and economic injustice, um, but yeah. Um, so it's angering and yeah, I'm glad that my white friends in Charlottesville want to know where and when the Juneteenth celebration is that I'm like, and what else? You know, right.
1: what's next? What's yeah. next? Yeah. 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 The whole, the whole Tulsa thing with the, the rally that was supposed to happen today, which is happening tomorrow, that, that just shows, I mean, we, I, I don't want to make this podcast about Donald Trump because that could be a five hour co- conversation, but I but it, it just shows how inept he and his team and white people that follow him, that like him, that are, that are falling in line with who he is and what he says and what he does, how inept they are, and how um, how shallow their desire to be an ally is. Because moving it one day didn't do shit. Like, oh, look at me. I mean, the dude literally said yesterday, I've done so much for Juneteenth, I made it famous. Nobody knew about it before that, which is complete and utter bullshit. But like, and that because then that shows me that he didn't really moving moving it from 19th to 20th was just a PR thing there's no real desire to help and to serve and to understand and to listen There, not a thing you can't cancel your cancel your rally dude
0: he knew well I my real belief is that they knew full well that it was Juneteenth um they, they they knew exactly what they were doing if they didn't know right away they knew very quickly and they chose not to move they chose to wait like this is again this is drama he's the king we must give it to him he's the king of television drama right and so you know he's not the king of wall street you know he's a failed businessman but but he's good at reality tv and this presidency is just one long episode of reality tv and that was reality tv um, for his base. Yeah. Um, And so and it worked. It absolutely worked. And so now people are flocking to Tulsa for the wrong damn reason. Yeah, for the wrong reason.
1: Yeah, they've been lining so. up for two days. They've been lining up yep. for two days. Yep. Okay, before we get too deep into this stuff, I want to help people and I don't you know, this is our first time meeting. So I want to know more about you. So before we get deep into what's currently happening right now. I want to talk about mm-hmm. what happened in 2015 with you at Wein. We're going to talk about your, your doc that I want everyone to see. Before all of that, who are you? Where are you from? What are some of the people, places, and things that made you into who you are today?
0: Yeah. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I am a Leo. I'm on the Leo Virgo border. My birthday is August 22nd. If that tells your people anything, I'm a one on the Enneagram. If that tells y'all anything. Um, And what that really means is that deep within me is, um, I have a deep sense of right and wrong. Um, I'm also an oldest child, right? Um, And if you study anything about birth order or just have observed anything about birth order, oldest children are normally the ones who do everything right and, Want to please their parents and and that kind of thing, and and I just fall in line. And I ask my mom; she's like, "You just came out like that? Yes, th- that's mm. that's how you came out, right?" Um, and for good or ill, I can't unsee injustice. Mm. Um, and once you have been presented with that, so for me, my inheritance is um is a rich inheritance of Black ancestors who um, whose dignity uh, remained intact and that I see in these old pictures that I look at of them, um, their, their outward beauty, but also their inner beauty. And the stories I hear from my parents and grandparents, um, aunts and uncles, about these people who have bequeathed this rich legacy of Blackness to me. And yes, of Black struggle and suffering. Um, But what they have bequeathed to me is making meaning out of suffering. And my grandfather was a pastor. Before that, he was an engineer. And before that, he, well, during that, um, he served in World War II, worked for the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, He came home to Oklahoma City after serving in World War II to be spat on on the street. Mm. My uncle served in, two uncles served in one in Vietnam and one during the Vietnam era in Germany. Um, I have a, my great grandfather before my grandfather served in world war one. I have a long history of black folk who have done this as an act of civic duty, not as devotion to a flag, but as their civic duty who come home and turn around to be denounced as um, Sub citizen, like failed citizen, subpar, not for anything that they have done, but because they're black. Um, my mom comes from a family of eight kids. Her older sister was the first undergraduate class to live, black undergraduate class, to live in the dorms at the University of Oklahoma. Her first roommate moved out because she was white. And so her next roommate was a woman of um, Southeast Asian Indian descent, and they remain best friends to this day. Pestinji. g. Hmm. and then my mother and father met at the University of Oklahoma. He from New Jersey, the summer of the Newark riots, and so lace to do my family's story is inescapable entanglements with white supremacists. United States. And so as a little girl, I cannot help but internalize the injustice that my people have endured. And they don't have to say it. I'm smart enough to hear it and smart enough to know that in my elementary school, I would be looked at differently than the white kids. My parents, and I don't remember my parents ever saying to me, Larisha, you have to be twice as good. That never came across their lips. I knew. Mm. And so that's who i be that's who i be that's my legacy and so i have within me um a deep sadness about injustice not just against my black brothers and sisters but exacted against anyone so that's that's who i am i mean in toto that's my story and oklahoma is not the south but it was a place where jim crow Um, Jim Crow was on the books to the hilt. Mm. There were lynchings in Oklahoma. My grandmother remembers. So anyway, that's who I am. I I have two sisters. Um, I'm the old, like I said, already, I'm the oldest. I have a nephew, um, my parents and my grand, one of my grandmothers is still alive. And so, um, yeah, I think it makes me who part of who I am and then who I am in particular is, uh, The one who can't keep her mouth shut about injustice is maybe, you know, they're like, be quiet, you know, like, (laughs) you don't have to like make a thing of this thing, right? Um, But yeah, but my family knows me and they love me.
1: If if you manage to get she couldn't shut up about injustice on your gravestone, (laughs) I think think that'll be a very fine thing to be remembered by. Here's something interesting. I mean, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, this is not, this is not going to be, um, an anti-white conversation, uh, but there are realities that we have to talk through and something Mm -hmm. very subtle that I've noticed. I've interviewed, um, all kinds of people on this show, black, white, of Asian descent of, you know, all, all over the place. I try to, I try to bring a mix of men and women and different religious backgrounds, no religious backgrounds. Here's one thing I've noticed when I ask white people to share their story with me, like I've asked you so many times, not all the time, but so many times it is over in like five seconds. They will say, Hey, I'm from, you know, I'm from Dallas, Texas. And I have, you know, parents and they loved me and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I went to school here and here I am. Uh, And something I've noticed is that when I ask black people, black guests, such as yourself, And, you know, I had Lisa Sharon Harper on a few weeks ago. And when I asked her, tell me your story, she just kind of threw her head back. And she said, well, it starts 450 years ago. Mm -hmm. And and she she went through and just talked and talked and talked. And I think it's so important, uh, not to say that white people don't have a history like that, but it seems like what I've noticed by and large is that white people aren't as interested in their heritage, where they've come, the wrongs they've done, the rights they've done, what what their, contrib- what their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents' contribution was to society. Or if they didn't have one and they're now in a position where they want to make a legacy because their ancestors didn't. Like it, it just, I've noticed that distinct difference where, you know, black people have gone through so much since being brought over to this country against their will and there's seems to be a greater desire to figure out who, like there's so much more pride in who the ancestors were and what they've gone through. And so it's just interesting to hear um your stories. So thank you for sharing that. The things that mm-hmm. you're, you know, your you talked about uncles and grand, grandpa and great grandpa and that they fought for this country and came back to experience discrimination and hatred and different things like that. Like that is a real part of who we are, you know, who we were back then and who we are still today, right? Those are the things we have to struggle through is like, in the same way that slavery was not fully and truly abolished in 1862 or 1865. Um, You know, I've, I've had, I was listening to a podcast from a dear brother uh, that, I, that I love, but disagree with on so many levels. A, a, a friend who's a, he leads a church planning network and he's white. And, you know, he's pretty convinced that Um, He's pretty convinced that the narrative that systemic oppression is still a thing is wrong and that black people do truly have uh, an equal seat at the table today because he looks at at data without looking at context. So he's looking at the data. The data and the facts are that redlining was abolished. The facts are slavery has been abolished for 200 years. The facts are this and the facts are that. And not looking at the context and also the full story. Um, you know, you can say, well, you can say, well, this was abolished here and this is not these, like we do have equal rights under the law, but if you don't go to black people, all kinds of black people and say, what's your story? When was the first time a a police officer pulled a gun on you? When was the first time you noticed people looking at you when you walked into a grocery store to make sure you weren't shoplifting? When was the first time this? And when was the first time that? um, that you don't have the full story. You can't just look at numbers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think all of those stories, all that to say the story you shared is beautiful and it's hard to listen to, but it's part of, uh, you know, another day in the life of a black American, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it is, it is just that to kind of get the full context. So thank you yeah. for sharing that. And you well, currently live... for noticing
0: that. Yeah, thanks of for course. noticing the difference between, um, The cultural difference of how we engage. There's nothing wrong with the narration of one story as I was born here. This is what I do. Um, but that's, you know, I could have done that, but it's not who I am. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So you, you're, um, you're in higher education. You're in a, you're, you're a PhD, right? What, what got you interested in wanting to go, you know, all the way in, in terms of like your academic studies, you know, it's, it's a hard road that you've chosen. Not many people choose it. So what, uh, what was it about? Maybe it was, you've already talked about your not being able to unsee unjustice and not being able to not do something about it. And so maybe it was part of your upbringing, but what, what got you interested in higher education?
0: Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. I, one of the things that, um, that I was always interested in growing up. (laughs) Maria, you um, retweeted me yesterday. You know, she's Latino USA. Um, I mean, I grew up on Sesame street and NPR, like that's my earliest remembrance. is like loving the news and, you know, loving big bird and Maria on Sesame street. And, um, anyway, I just, I'm saying that to say, I've always loved the news. I, always liked current events and some of that is i imagine my insides were turning every time i heard about unjust things and if you can't unsee it then you also can't understand why anyone would do that like why would anyone like chain other humans up um you know so it's it it just for the for the soul that can't unsee that darkness, um, yes, there's a racial cast to some of these things, but it's also it all just runs together. You can't see the color of people on the radio. Um, so there's something that I've always been connected to in terms of people, testimony, narrative, and some of that comes from my growing up in a black church tradition, which is an oral tradition. And, and in most variants of Christianity, testimony is part of that, at least Protestant Christianity, testimony is a huge part, um, of what it means to be part of, of a Christian community and people's, te- if people's testimony of history and injustice matters, um, I think I wanted to be part of a telling um a re-narration, a retelling, a reframing um from the perspective of the oppressed one. But then also um and I wouldn't have been able to articulate this then, right? But sure. like in hindsight, a retelling, a reframing and articulate re-articulation of narratives from the perspective of the oppressed, and then also part of writing those wrongs. And um and so uh, as an undergrad I studied history and sociology. Um, and then I worked a little bit after graduating and my dad was like, go to grad school, go to grad school. I literally did a year, a very expensive year at a private liberal arts college of an MBA. Woo, that was an expensive year to figure out that really I didn't want to do business management. I, I just thought that's what I was supposed to do, even though I had this hunger inside of me to do justice. Right. Um, and I took a public management class during my MBA um, and it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to work for justice in the, I want to manage in the public realm. So I started looking for government jobs. I got a government job, started working in um, housing, not housing, urban development, um, community development block grants for a year. And then I loved the coursework so much. I was like, well, I'm going to get a PhD someday, but I didn't want to do it yet. I wanted to work in government on injustice, right? And, um, so I wanted to be a bureaucrat and, um, and then one of my profs said, well, you know, Larisha, we really think you need to do a PhD. And I was like, oh, I'll do that later. And they're like, we'll pay for your school. And I was like, oh, oh and that this changes is in Oklahoma.
1: Conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And my nephew had been born at that point. And I was like, hmm, I'll pay for my PhD. I get to go to my nephew's soccer games on Saturdays, live 30 minutes from him. And watch him grow up because, you know, PhDs, it's a long haul.
1: Yep.
0: Um, it's not for and done. So uh, I said, yeah. It, even at that point, I didn't know I was going to be a professor. I just know I was going to get a PhD because really, still, I wanted to go back and work in public policy and affect change that way. Um, you know, think about equity from the perspective of communities and developing communities, still thinking in that business mindset, but it's just, It's not, it wasn't my, that was not to be. And so I I guess I caught the teaching bug because that's how I was paying the bills, right? Teaching American politics and government kind of eased my way into being a professor. And that's how I ended up at Wheaton College in Illinois and um, eventually at UVA where I am now. Which isn't very sexy. It was not this epiphany like (laughs) but that's
1: how it happened. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. That's really good context. I mean, I, yeah. If somebody's going to pay for your school and they see kind of value in you getting that degree, like, hell yeah. Like go for it, Mm -hmm. you know? So that, that, uh, that's really cool. I want to talk in a bit about kind of current events as well as you living in, I mean, Charlottesville, Virginia is kind of an interesting place in light of the conversations we're having 2017, unite the right rally and all that before we get to all that though, I think this is a good place to kind of dive into your time at Wheaton and kind of the the event that put you on uh, on blast uh, in the media on the big screen, as it were. Um, you were at Wheaton for how long?
0: I was at Wheaton for eight years, eight and a half years, eight years and one semester.
1: Got it. And so you you became you know the first uh, female. Black tenured professor at Wheaton College, which is a big thing. Was that was that a fast track for tenure? I, I I feel like it. It feels like it to me. I'm not a big like higher education buff, but you kind of getting tenure there. That feels like a big deal, right?
0: Yeah. So, um, Wheaton College was founded in 1860, I believe. It was um, a stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm. was the first institution, it's a verified stop, so it's on the National Register, everything. Um, it was the first institution in the state of Illinois to admit a black man, namely um, he was not enslaved, but you know, this is at the height of um, the Civil War, and during one of the semesters at Wheaton during the Civil War, the majority of the class was off fighting on behalf of the union. I think there were one or two students who fought on behalf of the Confederacy. Um, so it's a school steeped in abolitionist fervor, steeped in social justice fervor at, in terms of its founding. Um, for, for those of your listeners who don't know, um, it has an evangelical caste, but the founder was Methodist, interestingly. But at some point, it took a kind of evangelical shift over the years as as Christianity, Protestant Christianity in the U.S. turned. So um, so yeah, I worked there. Um, it was my first academic job and got tenure in 2013. And I had started a peace and conflict studies program there um, that took several years to get off the ground because of, you know, bureaucracy and some roadblocks um, internally to doing that. And i um, in the fall of 2015, that you're talking about, I was teaching the very first Intro to Peace and Conflict Studies um, intro class. We had, I think, 16 students, which was amazeballs for the very first yeah. iteration of the class. Um, it was delightful and it was. I feel like a wonderful moment in the history of a social justice-founded institution yeah. to finally have a program reflective of that founding. Um, 100,
1: 155 years later, after its yeah. founding, yeah. Gi- give me the elevator pitch for this class because I'm obviously uh, I'm very intrigued by the idea of peace and conflict. Like,
0: wh- right? Why did you so,
1: Why did you want to teach it? And kind of, yeah. Again, like, what was the synopsis?
0: Well, this is a great question. I mean, there are a lot of um, kind of internal um, dimensions of curricula and programs. One of the most popular programs at Wheaton College that I actually was involved in was called the Human Needs and Global Resources Program, but it's highly selective, selective, excuse me. Students um, apply, I think, early their sophomore year. So you have to know pretty early on that you want to do this. You have to become you know, fluent or at least very um, um, have a high facility with the language, be, maybe be willing to learn a language that the school doesn't offer, like Hindi. You want to go to in- certain parts of India. Um, so students have to apply pretty early and everyone doesn't know. Um, and students are placed in a developing or underdeveloped country, Um, in a home for six months, they get a visit from a faculty. It's an amazing life-changing program. Um, Students aren't going to teach people, they're going to learn. Um, Learning from some of the most depressed, um, I like to say what I learned going to visit students was I learned what it means to be human. So for example, I visited um, Rwanda. I visited an organization that is continuing to reconcile. Hutu and Tutsis um, in the aftermath of genocide because there's, there's still a lack of reconciliation, all of these fallouts and um, ramifications of, um, of the genocide, obviously, over 20 years later. It changed my life. Uh, mm-hmm. I, that's not an understatement. Everyone who knows me knows that um, seeing a person sit next to the person who killed their entire family breaking bread with them, living side-by-side side with them, um, raising their kids together, um, raising their cows together. Um, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And what that says to me is, you know, we think we have stuff um, to forgive here. We, th- we think we have rivenness. Try, try living in the aftermath of genocide where your neighbor killed your neighbor, wow. where a husband kills his wife. And they are forgiving one another. Um, and this is a hard-fought forgiveness, yes, Um, it's not simplistic, Um, but if they can do that, so can we, and so I say that to say what we lacked, though, was a program for students in general who were interested in things like kind of local community development, local community peacemaking. Um, We have... Myriad opportunities in Chicago, like Wheaton is literally a 25 minute train ride from Chicago, the train comes every hour. Um, and so, um, and then other students wanted to do more of these kinds of um, programs unconnected from the Human Needs and Global Resources program that I was a part of. And so there was demand all over campus from all kinds of students for some kind of academic home instead of hobbling together classes here and there, where they could get something like a certificate, which is more hours than a minor, less than a major, kind of somewhere in between, do internships, but receive kind of guided study and curriculum around, well, what is peace? What is conflict? Conflict bad? Well, actually, conflict is normative. Conflict is part of life, right? Um, there was pushback against calling it peace studies because the administration thought, well, we have an ROTC. Are they going to feel left out? And um, actually, the ROTC was one of the first departments to say, "We train. We're training to keep peace. We believe in peace, right? right? Yes, we're trained to defend." and to fight if we have to, but we want peace. So what the the miracle was, there was such buy-in. And so the class was comprised of, well, let's talk about what is peace. It's not just the absence of conflict. Peace is an active pursuit, which as a Christian, for me, when I read the Beatitudes and when I read about the Prince of Peace, the the Prince of Peace is actively, um, in some ways you could say, creating these situations and moments where um ribbonness comes to the circle so we can deal with it right or comes to the forefront so that we can deal with it. And um so in some in some senses, you know, come to bring peace but a sword, right? To get it all on the table. And that's what the program was meant to do, um to give students a place. um, And there have been graduates of the program, which is exciting and it continues. So that's why I started it. There was a lot of student demand. And so it wasn't just like necessarily like I was sitting around going, because it's hard to do. I mean, it took, I spent my only sabbatical, I was at Wheaton. I spent that whole semester essentially working on this program, not on my own work, because it just took so much to get the the sign off and the buy-in and and all of that. Um, And I'm pleased to do that. And I want to give a shout out to Notre Dame. And the Kroc Institute, there, Kroc money is McDonald's money, but um, they've given a lot of money to peace building. And I got to go to a free institute at Notre Dame um, one summer to me and two of my colleagues to learn about how to start peace, peace and conflict programs. Um, Because. um, Yeah, so it's it's neat to know that this is, yeah, this is a pursuit all over the country at all kinds of schools, not just Christian schools, though
1: man, there's so much in there. Um, I kind of want to dive into, but I'll try to hold back for now. But I do think I, I will say this uh, that that seems like a course that I want to take and that I want everyone to take because so many of us, I think as for those of us that call ourselves Christians or really any like any of the kind of major religions, you know that are out there, they're all calling ultimately for people to you know be peacemakers, right in in yeah. in, in the Christian faith. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. They'll see God. They'll inherit the earth. Like it's it's kind of this ultimate goal to become a peacemaker, but to get to 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 achieve that goal of peace and shalom, yeah. we have to go through some shit, and that's yeah. It's it's hard conversations and it's hard stuff, and we might have to put up a fight here and there. You know, like right now we're we're peacefully protesting in down, not at this moment, but there's a group of us, I was talking about it before we were recording, in downtown Nashville. Uh, at the beginning of the George Floyd protest, we tore down the Edward Carmack uh, statue, a blatant racist, uh, and we're trying to get a, a statue of Ida B. Wells put up there, the, the, the antithesis of Carmack. And right now, in the past seven days, there have been people there for seven straight days and shifts, 24 hours a day, and we've had 30 people arrested and and we've all done everything peacefully. There's been no antagonizing. Yes, there's been anger and there's been shouting. And there's, you know, there's been some rowdiness because we have 50 state troopers and National Guard look, you know, staring at us from across the street at every, any given time and they've arrested us for, for absolutely nothing. Um, I was almost arrested the other night, you know, as a result of trying to get onto our property, property that belongs to us. And they had no reason to keep us off, but they 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 uh, assaulted several of us in order to kind of, oh, COVID-19 and this and that, and these kind of bullshit made up rules in the moment to kind of keep us off our property. Anyway, that all to point out that to get to peacemaking, hard stuff has to happen in the process a lot of times. It isn't just, let's forget about everything that's happened, you know, let's shake on it and we'll just go, you know, we'll act like nothing bad has ever happened here in this circumstance. And that's not it. Yeah. That's not it. Jesus himself flipped tables. He he yep. up, he upset the powers that be. He had no problem calling out the state and was ultimately killed by the state um for for pursuing, you know, peace and justice on the earth, right? And yeah. so that's an interesting I, I I would I would love to look at, you know, maybe maybe you can uh, pass along some of that uh uh stuff later on. I'd love to see the course okay. more in depth. But, um, okay, so cool. So later you were just beginning. So let's bring it up to speed. You're in the fall semester of 2015. You just began to teach this course that you worked really hard on. And in December of 2015, in a season that Christians call Advent, you did something that caused a ruckus. And you admittedly did not think it was going to be a ruckus because in your mind, this was a simple act of solidarity, something that Christians and non-Christians alike should constantly be seeking to do with people that, that you know don't live or believe in the same way that we do. So tell yeah. us, give us some context for what happened uh, on that, fa- I think it was a Facebook post, on that Facebook post that kind of blew up and that ultimately cost you your job. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so it was December 2015. And given that every day these days feels like a month, um, yes. I want to remind, remind everyone like, what was going on in December 2015 was the height of campaigning for the upcoming presidential elections, right? Um, what had happened also... Was San Bernardino uh, shootings, mm. if you recall, in California. I sadly don't remember how many people lost their lives there, and um, but there was a Muslim extremist um, and an associate that was that were arrested. I think killed um, by the police when they were apprehended, and there was an uptick in anti-Muslim vitriol, and. In the midst of that, Donald Trump is running for president of the United States on a slogan of make America great again. Mm. The red hats weren't out yet at that point. And um, Donald Trump made a speech on December 7th, 2015, in which he said um, he was critiquing President Obama's response. And he said, "If I become President of the United States, I will ban Muslims from entering the United States of America." And Jerry Falwell, Jr. of Liberty University, um, a Christian university, a very large Christian university with tens of thousands, tens of, of thousands. yeah. Um, students. Um, online and on campus. So it has a lot of influence um, in this area of Virginia where I live and, and in the United States broadly um, amongst a certain constituency. But he was speaking in what's called their convocation. In other words, chapel, um, a religious service essentially. And um, in their religious services, for example, people kind of come and um, from preachers to politicians, right? And uh, kind of prove their fundamentalist slash evangelical bona fides from chapel. um, I can't remember, a politician had just spoken and he got up and he addressed what happened in San Bernardino. And this is what he said to like 30,000 people sitting in their basketball gymnasium. What he said is, if those Muslims um, showed up in here, if everyone had what I have in my back pocket and he takes his hand and makes a trigger finger, we could end those Muslims before they end us. And then he said, I don't know, is it, is it illegal for me to pull this out? Meaning his gun. Right. Um, And he said, uh, and by the way, we offer gun training classes on campus, like gun certification classes on campus. Virginia has open carry laws. Um, I was just at a protest last night, surrounded by groups of militia with AK-47s, packing them openly on their bodies. And um, counter-protesters to our peaceful Black Lives Matter protest. Um, High school students had organized it, um, and white men with big guns are saying,